Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. What will the economy look like after the pandemic? Already, politicians are trying to claw back government debt, even as the virus still ravages through the world. Britain seems to think it's all over, even though the infection rates are incredibly high. Parts of Australia seem destined for lockdowns for months to come. So what shape will business be in, and how do we fix unemployment, which is still many millions more in the United States than it was at the start of the pandemic, with expectations of the speed of the recovery significantly curtailed all over the world. So what about the world after the pandemic? That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. Well, one thing we do know about life after the uh, pandemic, which could be years away yet, couldn't it, uh, if we're being honest? One thing we do know is that governments are going to say that they are heavily in debt and so will corporations. We also know, thanks to the work of central banks, that the rich are going to be richer and the poor, well, many of them won't have a job. So, I mean, Steve, will we have learned anything after all of this, do you think? Or is it just back to life as normal? That's the trouble. I mean, we, we, we ha- we've, we're already starting to unlearn it. I mean, I've seen, what's the Chancellor's name in the UK? Rishi Sunak is the guy. Okay, Sunak. Sunak. Uh, always immaculately dressed. Okay. Coming out and saying we've got to have, you know, austerity and taxes afterwards to make up for the huge debt we've accumulated. Now, that's the exact opposite of what, Modern monetary theory had made so much headway uh, in in pointing out that you know, governments don't tax to spend; they spend and then tax the money out of circulation. And uh, my my point has always been: look, if you look at the Second World War, how did they find all the money to uh, finance the incredible increase in armaments and all the people on you know, full employment because you're in the army or you or your your wife who used to be back at home is now working in a factory as Rosie the Riveter. Where, how did they find the money? They created it by running the deficit. Um, mm. So if if that- but it's too late now, isn't it? Because they've already gone down the road of issuing bonds, and so. Now they've done that. I mean, they've got a you know people have put money into those bonds. Some of you know a lot of it is the central bank, admittedly, so they can presumably they could write that off if they wanted to. But a lot of it is uh, out out on the open market. So it's too late to do that now, isn't it? Because they've they've issued the bonds. No, they can people- buy the, the central bank could buy all the bonds, and it, it does you know it doesn't matter anyway. The bonds themselves, the the the, finance, the money to buy the bonds that the banks for initially used to do it is created by the deficit. This so mm. there, there are there are things we could have learned out of this and said, hang on a sec. All the constraints we thought that meant we government had to tax after a large, uh, in, in, a large spending spree like the the COVID is unnecessary, and it could be actually liberating to know that. But it appears that the the tone is already being set to go back to austerity after COVID. Yeah. And, because of this big yeah. fear that we've got, uh, yeah, government debt, public sector debt now at around 100% of GDP. Um, but, you know, as you said, I mean, after the war, it was 250% of, uh, of of GDP in the UK. And even in 1957, when we had Howard, Howard Macmillan saying that the people have never had it so good, 
public debt then was about 120% of, of GDP. Admittedly, it was on its way down from that peak of 250%. Um, but, um, you know, it's it still, it's, you know, we've, we've got used to this idea that government debt is always going to be very yeah, small. But what we've also experienced, that it drew dramatically, and, the, and, the, and rather than the, the you know, wheels falling off the economy, it kept the wheels on the economy, because without that spending, so many mm. people would have been unable to pay their rent, unable to pay their mortgage, landlords would have been potentially sent bankrupt as well, banks would have been sent bankrupt. There's no way a pure private sector economy would have survived COVID. Absolutely no way. Yeah, uh, uh, and actually, I mean, so it's interesting, isn't it? Because on the one side, we say, well, we want to draw back all that money now. But on the other side, it's obviously done quite a lot of good. So one thing it has done has stopped corporate debt rising quite so much. So Janice Henderson's corporate debt index, I was looking at, uh, says that uh, corporate debt jumped uh, over 10% last year to an all-time high of uh, $13.5 trillion through bond issuance. But most of that wasn't spent. So there's been very little additional debt taken on in 2021, which is amazing, um, you know, that basically so many companies have survived through this thing. And a lot of that has been because there has been support from the government, you know, furloughing wages, giving, uh, giving help where it's needed. And that's helped these companies survive. Yeah, so we should be learning uh, if fundamentally that particular point of modern monetary theory. The government is not a money borrower; it's a money creator. Yeah, um, and it, it's not whether it, uh, it doesn't have to borrow to spend; it spends to create create money. Uh, so, so you don't have any problem about financing government spending. That is the lesson we could have learned. If you look back at the Second World War, that is the lesson that was learned in the Second World War as well. And we finally, the understanding is reversed by the growth of neoclassical economics, which is always has a, has a, you know, a child's understanding of a monetary system, sees it just as a barter system. But that mentality is, is so ingrained that even COVID hasn't disturbed it completely. Well, is, and, is it know. going to be an interesting case study then? If we find that we go through a period where a year and a half where the government has provided support to, to, to business, kept them afloat, and then when it starts to panic about how much debt it's racked up and starts to pull back and we start to see businesses go to the wall, which is happening, by the way. So the, the number of company dissolutions in the UK last year was pretty much what it was the year before. Uh, and it's only in the last quarter, in Q2 and the beginning of Q3, that it's leapt up to rates far, far higher than it was, like 30% higher than it was um, in 2019. So it seems like they're pulling the money back now, the government money back, and companies are paying the price for that. Yeah, and that's that, that's what worries me, that we're actually going to end up unnecessarily bankrupting corporations, mm. having got them through the crisis of COVID. Uh, on the other side of it, we say, okay, now we're going to send you bankrupt because we're going to try to take money out of the economy in the belief we've got to pay our debt down. And by doing it, you're going to have a drop in your pro- private sector cash flow and you're going to go bankrupt. Terribly sorry. Um, that's not what our theory says will happen. So we're going to continue following our theory rather than what the, the practical experience of COVID should have taught us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the other side of it, of course, was that, you know, think they could pull back because the private sector was going to bounce back because public spending was going to bounce back. I mean, Andrew Bailey, 
you know, was uh, was was really selling that up, wasn't he? He seems to have gone quiet on Andrew Bailey's the governor of the Bank of England, for those who don't know. But he, he, I mean, he was making a big point that we expect the economy to bounce back because people have got all this excess money sitting in their bank accounts because uh, they weren't paying their train fares into London and the like. So they're all cashed up. And so they're going to be going out, going out and buying, and that's going to save all these companies. He seems to have gone quiet on that because it's taken a while for that to happen, isn't it? Yeah, and, and the other thing, which is, I mean, one thing I must say I did not expect uh, with COVID was a house price bubble. Uh, but that seems mm. to be a global phenomenon. House prices are rising virtually everywhere. And uh, the, 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 in some ways, I would have liked us to learn that house price bubbles are not a road to permanent, sustainable um, wealth. But uh, whatever factors are behind it, whether people are, uh, you know, not because they're not spending on overseas holidays, they're, they're thinking of, um, you know, how do I make an investment for the future and what can I invest in? Bang, I'll buy houses. Um, but there's oh, I'll do up my house oh? as well. So that part part of it will be home improvements as well. That people are selling houses that have been done up more uh, because they've invested the, the you know the holiday money into 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 DIY or adding an extension onto the house. But it's obvious, isn't it, why house prices are high? Because interest rates have been low for so long, and there's this expectation they're going to stay low forever. That is part of it, uh, and and but, and, but all, all, you know, basically the bubble has been sustained by government policies uh, as, as well. I mean, Australia is the classic instance of that. It, it, every government policy is about making sure the house prices don't fall. Uh, the, the objective is to achieve expensive, affordable housing. Um, and that seems to be a global phenomenon, uh, which, which in some ways is a, is a baby boomer versus the rest phenomenon, because it's the, the baby boomer generation that owns the housing, and it's the Gen X and Gen Y that can't get into the market in the first place. And rather than saying, well, we've got to drop prices, so let Gen X get in here, um, they're trying to find uh, ways to give money to the Gen X, so the Gen X can again give ten times that much money to the baby boomers, keep the bubble going, and that is—I must say—that's probably the most disappointing thing for me out of the the whole crisis. I, w- I would have hoped that the housing bubble was ultimately pricked, courtesy of COVID, and instead it's been inflated, courtesy of COVID. Yeah, with no signs of slowing. So, what about share prices then? Did it surprise you that we've seen records? being broken time and time again, particularly in the United States. No, this this is where quantitative easing comes in because, again, it's a case of if you have people uh, with the with the, you know, the monetary power of the Federal Reserve and the UCB and the Bank of England and so on, believing that they can only promote the economy through quantitative easing, then that is, that's what inflates share prices because the whole idea of QE... <clears throat> Buying bonds off the banking sector, fundamentally, mm. uh, also off some, you know, pension groups and so on, but fundamentally the banking sector, and uh, that then says, well, you haven't got bonds anymore. What are you going to buy to make a return on? Why don't you buy shares? Um, and and there's the, the limitless capacity of the Federal Reserve and, and any central bank to buy bonds uh, issued in its own currency, whether that's private bonds or public bonds. So that is that that has gone on steroids. You know, QE has gone up into overdrive. Uh, and during uh, during COVID, and it it wouldn't have if we had central bank digital currencies, then it would have been possible for the central banks to interact with the, with you know the the, the non financial sector, the, you know, the main street rather than Wall Street. Uh, but with that hasn't happened, so we've actually amplified what we were doing beforehand that was causing rising inequality by driving up share prices, and we've done it even more uh, under COVID. Mm. And those big companies that are listed, 
are the ones surviving uh, and it's the smaller businesses that seem to be struggling so and it amazes me how some companies have survived so if you take the iag group which is uh, the international airline group which is uh, which which includes british airways and uh, the spanish airline as well they turned a 2.6 billion euro profit in 2019 they turned that into a 7.4 billion euro operating loss in 2020 they still managed to make 2.4 billion euros in interest-bearing deposits and they still had almost 6 billion in cash and those interest-bearing deposits at the end of 2020. So, I mean, they were all cashed up to start with, in other words. They've hung on to a lot of that cash, even though they've not actually been operating much in the way of being an airline. So uh, uh, these big companies, because of that, are obviously going to survive at the, the expense of the smaller ones. Um, and, you know, on, on top of that, you've got the government obviously helping keeping those companies going by paying their workers as well. Um, so uh, I just wonder whether out of all of this, we're going to see lots of small companies going to the wall and, and yeah, power is going to be concentrated in the hands of a few companies again. Which is a very unpleasant outcome because, again, that mm. we're talking about the miserization of the working class uh, in the last podcast. I mean, yeah. this, this is the miserization of the of the. Uh, of the petty bourgeoisie. There was another thing Marx thought would happen. You're wiping out the small firms. They're the ones who don't have access to the central bank. They can't sell bonds because of the central bank because they don't issue them in the first place. Um, so in that sense, government policy has amplified the inequality in the underlying system as well. And the, the, the big get bigger and the small go bankrupt. That seems to be the... Well, and that, and that is not at all what I wanted to see after COVID either. No. Well, yeah, and you want to see how easy it is for them to go bankrupt. So in the UK, small businesses borrowed in Q1 last year. So, you know, most of that wasn't during the pandemic. They borrowed £2 billion. Q2, they borrowed £35 billion. Whoa, yeah. That's what I've... I mean, I mean look at the, the, the stats... Globally, that's what I see, a dramatic increase in corporate debt, not particularly a rise in household debt. Mm. Uh, it's mainly been the corporate sector that has done it. But it's been the it. small the, It's been the small end yeah, rather than yeah, the big end yeah. that has borrowed yeah. the most because the big end, one of their big expenses is labour. Uh, a lot of the other expenses they've been able to wind down by just not operating. So airlines haven't been buying aircraft fuel quite as much as well, for, you know, for example. So they've lost a lot, but small businesses, you know, no business means no business. You've got to shut your doors. And then, and that thing, we, we could have prevented that. That's one thing. Like we see in Australia is one of the countries that's struggling with COVID right now. And part of what they did was uh, they had what they call a job keeper, I think it was. Yeah, a job shopkeeper program, uh, which paid companies rather than rather than individuals directly. But because they're focusing upon you know balancing our future books, they've restrained how much they've done of it, and this has meant that a lot of small companies have gone bankrupt. Particularly, of course, in you know things like restaurants and uh, and anything involving uh, lots of contact with the public, uh, they've gone under, and uh, we're, we're likely to see. You know, a smaller, small business sector and much larger, large corporations after it, and lots of very disgruntled people, I expect, too. Uh, well, that's going to mean less people. In, yeah, because, I mean, I guess one of the advantages of small businesses is, I mean, they, they contribute a couple of things, don't they? First of all, they contribute employment. So it's going to take uh, more people in small businesses to do the same stuff that uh, people working in large larger companies would do because they're not going to have the same economies of scale. But also they'd have innovation as well that comes from, from smaller business. We'll, we're, we're going to lose both of those. I guess the, the argument would be, well, innovation is what will see them come back, but that could take years. Yeah, and we don't necessarily have years. I mean, my, my worries, as you always know, is, the, is the, the, the ecological 
bronchitis see COVID as the first stage in this. And what we, to really get through that crisis, we need a much, much stronger focus upon equality. We need to reduce the extremes of wealth. We need the, the wealthy have to be the ones who pay uh, for, the, uh, in, uh, for the decline in our uh, exploitation of the world's physical resources, not the poor. But everything we've done under COVID has made the poor pay more uh, and have less, less security, and the wealthy have done very well. Thanks very much. So mm. it's again, it's 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 if this if, if you regard COVID as a dress rehearsal for what's going to happen uh, with uh, climate change, then you know, the human race has failed the audition. <laughs> and it, I mean, it, it's it is obvious, isn't it, where government policy has gone wrong on this, though, between the rich and the poor. So on the one side, uh, low interest rates and QE have been pushing up house prices and pushing up share prices, respectively. Uh, uh, and the larger corporations have managed to survive because they've, they're cashed up and they've got investments. Uh, smaller companies have been resorting to things like the government's recovery loan scheme, as a, for example. So the government will pay lenders a guarantee of uh, uh, 80% on loans, this is in the UK right now, for loans between mm. 25000 and £10 million, through to the end of this year. So, But a, a bank's not. If, if, a, if a company is struggling, we've got banks in the UK now, for example, saying um, that we are not going to give mortgages to people who called on, self-employed people who called on the government for, for assistance last year because there was a scheme to help the self-employed, we're not going to offer them mortgages. So if they're not going to, even though they might be, you know, back on their feet now. So if they're not going to do that, banks aren't going to give loans to struggling uh, in, to small companies, are they? Even if the government says they're going to give an 80% guarantee, they're not going to do it unless the government gives a 100% guarantee. Yes, yeah, so we've ended up with, you know, increasing concentration of wealth and power. Yeah, um, and I think that's the exact opposite of what we need is an af- in the aftermath to COVID. And if you think again, I, I make a lot of comparisons between COVID and the Second World War, um, because first on the positive side, uh, the money to, needed to fight the Nazis and the money needed to fight COVID was created by the government very rapidly uh, using the mechanisms of you know what, what modern monetary theory. But when you look at what happened in the terms of the the political attitude in the aftermath of the Second World War versus after COVID. Uh, the, the, you know, many, many uh, uh, military who came back from the front lines uh, wanted equality. They wanted uh, you know, decent living standards. They didn't want to repeat in the 1930s. They'd been through the 1930s already. That's what led to the Second World War. There was a strong focus upon equality and, and fairness and improving the lots of people at the bottom of society. And again, being Australian, I, I can quote the white paper on employment in 1946 by Nugget Coombs uh, off from, from memory. And in that, he said the objective of government policy is to maintain such pressure on the economy as to guarantee a shortage of, of men rather than a shortage of jobs. Now, leaving aside the sexism there, the whole idea was to make the poor better off. And that was the, the founding of the what we saw the growth of the, the, the welfare state uh, and, and in, a, in a, you know, strongly capitalist economies in the post-war period, we're seeing nothing like that coming out of COVID. Right. Are you getting a bit of a storm going on there, by the way? You can tell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 when, when, when Only we slightly. Finally, if, 
if we ever manage to build our house, this has been put on hold because of the uh, the, the lockdown here when no construction is allowed, then I want to put a, you know soundproofing and a damn solid roof on top of my study. But at the moment, it's a it's it's not raining cats and dogs. It's raining. Uh, it's, it's closer to raining alligators over here. But it's. When it rains here, it really rains. It rains, yeah. It's been a bit like that in the UK last the last couple of weeks as well. So, look, how is employment going to recover then? In because the, that's going to be the key thing out of all of this, hasn't it? There's going to be less people with jobs. I mean, there's the, this, this hope, this vain hope that we keep on hearing that jobs are going to bounce back. But it, I think everyone has been surprised, even those people who've been advocating that about how slowly that is happening but it's obvious why it's happening it's because uh, it, as people are coming off furlough there's no job left for them and there's companies that have folded so if we continue seeing that have if jobs don't come back that means interest rates aren't going to rise in a hurry uh, and we're already you know getting word of that that this idea that uh, well the first stage before interest rates rising is easing back on qe tapering as the central banks like to call it and they've been talking about that but now they're pushing it back a year maybe two years uh, except in New Zealand, strangely. So QE is going to continue. Uh, share prices are going to continue to rise. The finance sector is going to continue to prosper. Uh, and everyone else is going to be left without a job. I mean, ha- ha- the, uh, what is the way through for, for all of this? This could, be a, this could be a massive scarring on the economy. It could. And, I mean, you know, the, the, the real problem, I think, is, you know, are we going to see the end of COVID? Because uh, what's, what's troubled me, and, and mm. you know, again, economists, I think, have done... A lot of, I'm going to give half my profession a reasonable uh, pass on this front because quite a few economists, people I normally disagree with, are becoming out saying, oh, we've got to eradicate this thing. The countries that did best are the ones that eradicated it, New Zealand being the, by far the best example now. Uh, that's what we should have done rather than trying to balance the costs and benefits, so to speak, which you know, other economists have argued. Um, but the thing is, we're fighting an evolutionary foe. And we've now got the Delta variant, which we're now seeing is apparently as contagious as chickenpox. And, uh, and maybe deadlier as well. Um, and because we've seen so ineffective at controlling it, uh, you know, rather than wiping it out in 12 weeks as Yanir Bayam thought we could do if we did a complete you know, lockdown of the private, of the private economy, uh, government funding to enable people not to have to go to work, essential workers, and, and essential workers means doctors, nurses, and delivery, delivery men and people in factories. It doesn't mean... Uh, the, the, the so-called master of the universe in finance. If we'd done all that stuff, we, we would come out with, uh, you know, there would, there would be after COVID. But it's quite possible we'll never see after COVID. It'll continue evolving under the pressures we've put it by, by, by the half-assed lockdowns we've done and the half-assed vaccination campaigns we've yeah. done. Well, we've got to vaccinate the world. That's the thing, isn't it? And uh, we've got to convince the anti-vaxxers to take the vaccine too. So, But New Zealand hasn't eradicated, has it? They've just closed the doors. So if it gets into New Zealand and they can't control it, then they find themselves in a situation that Australia's been finding itself in. Uh, well, I, I've got to, I mean, in that case, we've got to mention to our people who, you know, podcasters who don't have an Australian background, that the, the, the one uh, shining example in Australia, or was, well, there's several, but Victoria has managed to eliminate the Delta variant twice now. Um, mm. and it, Through harsh lockdowns, Harsh basically. lockdowns, but they work. And the New Zealand, mm. I think New Zealand, again, with Jacinta Ardern in, in power, uh, if it does get inside, she'll do a repeat of the lockdowns that knocked it out last time round. So it can be done, but it takes a government that is resolute about it and that doesn't make the stupid mistakes the rest of the world have done is trying to believe that you know, it's got to do a cost-benefit analysis before it, 
it shuts down. You shut the damp, uh, you shut the borders down. You top stop transmission happening, and about and you know, between six and twelve weeks later, you don't have the disease anymore. Um, but because we haven't done that, it's going to continue coming back in different forms. And 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 yeah, New Zealand may well ultimately face something which is so contagious it even gets through their their quarantines. So back to the economy. Um We've got, obviously, fewer companies. We've got, um, we talked about it last week, the retail sector being devastated um, because of the rise of Amazon. Uh, Amazon made almost $30 billion in profit last year from, you know, delivering God knows what to people in uh, numerous oversized cardboard boxes, uh, replacing uh, uh, high street workers. So those jobs will never come back now. So that, I mean, that means if if we're losing so many jobs, that means more government support is going to be needed. That means uh, uh, higher welfare payments, which means uh, you know governments that are trying to cut back on on the uh, on their debt are actually going to be faced with the, the opposite. There's got to be a point of of reckoning at, at at some stage in all of this, particularly if you know, as I fear that this we're going to be you know struggling through lockdowns for another year or so. Um, there's got to be a point of reckoning where governments say, "Oh my God, that you know, this we are now racking up so much debt. We need to do. We need to look at this differently." Are we going to reach that? I don't know. I mean, um, one thing. <laughs> uh, there, there well, are, I mean, at some point, at some point, there's got to they've got to reach a stage where they go, "Well, it was 100 percent of GDP. Now it's 200 percent of GDP. Uh, what do we do about this? Because we're never going to pay that back." And, and hopefully, you know, the realization that modern monetary theory has brought forward that you don't have to pay it back. Uh, may sink in, mm. but you know I'm I'm not optimistic um, because our capacity not to learn from experiences like this and and to unlearn what we did learn, we showed that after the Second World War, at least we had an interregnum of about twenty years of you know what we now call the golden age of capitalism before the stupidity took over once more. But it looks like the stupidity is you know up and ready to run. Uh, it's going to get the gold medal yet again. And companies that have smaller companies that are heavily in debt or going to the wall, I mean, should we say that there's a, you know, there's a school of thought, I don't subscribe to it, but there's a school of thought that says, well, if they can't survive, they shouldn't survive. Um, something else will come. That person might start up another business or work for another business, they, you know, so, so they'll be in a job. Someone, you know, a lot of jobs that existed before aren't needed anymore. I mean, that was one of the arguments for furloughing, isn't it? Is it does it make sense to furlough uh, for jobs that are just going to disappear uh, once the once COVID has gone because the world's moved on? But, um, that, that's that's one that's one reason I was, um, you know, way back in March I said we sh- we can't allow COVID bankruptcies to hit us because the system is fragile enough as it is with the level of private debt mm. uh, that exists right now. Uh, to make it more fragile, courtesy of an increase in debt, which is taken on not for investment and not for consumption, but for just survival. to pay existing financial commitments because you don't have the cash yeah. flow anymore. You, you don't want that to be an extra encumbrance around the global economy after we get out of it. But it looks like but it's that, that's where your idea of a debt jubilee comes in, isn't it? Maybe you could do that in a partial way. If you say, yeah. well, okay, if you're running a business that, uh, that, that has racked up a certain amount of debt, uh, let's pay it for you and take you back to where you were before this started. You know, it's almost let's pretend this never happened. Yeah, something of that nature. I mean, it's quite it's feasible to do it, but it, it takes an understanding that the government's got that capacity uh, to create money um, and to use that to cancel credit-based money and then reduce the the credit the the debt burden on the economy. And actually, in that sense, again, leaving out climate change. 
that sense enable a boom to occur because of the abolition, the reduction in the claims of the financial sector on the rest of the economy. I mean, what, what I had hoped we'd learn is that the financial sector has become a parasite rather than a, a, you know, part of the source of growth of a capitalist economy. But we haven't learned that and we're likely to end up you know, with the, the non-financial sector being even more in debt to the financial sector after COVID than it was beforehand. So one one country that does seem to be aware of this, I mean, at the risk of us being, uh, you know, branded as a, a couple of Marxists, wouldn't be the first time, would it, um, is, you know, the approach that China's taking. China does seem to be going through all of this thinking, well, OK, we've we've embraced capitalism, but we need to make sure that it's a it's a fair capitalism. We need to ensure that, you know, like, like looking at what they've done in the uh, in the education sector, for example, they looked and saw that it was uh, basically private education was getting hijacked by capital. Uh, and if now they're saying, well, if you want to le- le- play in that space in China, remote learning and the like, or providing uh, services to the education sector, you've got to be a non-profit organization and no investment from overseas. It's going to be an interesting juxtaposition, isn't it, between this greater control that we're now seeing in China and us in the West happily carrying on down this laissez-faire road uh, which is becoming largely unfair for those people who don't have money. Yeah, and I, th- I think China's you know, level of scepticism about the private sector in education and finance uh, may be at saving grace over time. Mm. Uh, and, and in addition, I mean, I mean, I remember claiming and annoyed a few of my patrons when I said this, that I thought China would strengthen itself by its response to COVID. And it's damn well done that. I mean, even even we're talking about the outbreak. I haven't actually looked at the numbers in China for some time. They do have outbreaks taking place in, in various countries, but they like their total number of cases, I think, is still, what, less than 100,000? That's because um, they weld the doors shut, Steve. Yeah, that's, but it, it, I mean, it, it, it worked, okay? <laughs> it worked. And it, you didn't have to weld every door shut, whereas it... If, you know, it's the half-assed approach that was taken in the West that has meant that why this thing has lingered on for so long and why we actually have things like the Delta variant. All the variants we're now complaining about, we, we might wonder where COVID itself originated. We damn well know none of the variants we're now worried about originated in China. They all originated yeah. in the West. So Andrew and, Bailey's and comments Peru. that... The- Andrew Bailey's comments that the economy was going to bounce back. So it's it's interesting that uh, if you look at credit card payments in the UK now, mm. um, obviously they, you know they we've seen big dips uh, during various lockdowns. Now they are just about where they were before the uh, before the pandemic started, but there's certainly no increase above that level. There's no latent demand. We just seem to have reached where we were. That's not enough, is it? You need to. There needs to be a bit of a, a catch-up going on for for companies to survive. I think companies have all been planning on the fact that when they can open again, there will be so much demand that they'll uh, be able to cover some of the losses they've made. But if they go back to just where they were before, which is uh, uh, I was going to use that word equilibrium, but you know the, where <laughs> the business where the business was operating at a level where they were making just enough to survive, that's not going to be enough if they've racked up debt in the meantime. No, that's the trouble. They've got extra debt to carry. And if you put the interest rates up right now, you would really find that just how fragile uh, capitalism is, financially fragile right now. So I think, again, the idea is that inflation was going to get to rip in interest rates or rise, et cetera, et cetera. Not with the level of debt we've got. You'll take the wind out of the economy very rapidly with a very small rise in interest rates. 
Yeah, well, here's a very scary figure. This is according to UK Finance. Uh, Small businesses have seen a 20% increase in their monthly loan repayments. In manufacturing, it's 45%. In professional services, it's almost 30%. I don't know how you can work that out in the you know in the long term. How do you, how do you survive when you've had such a significant increase? in your loan repayments. I mean, they, they, they are mm. staggering. So what you get out of that is credit stagnation, which is what you know, we had already after, mm. the, after the financial crisis, and we're just going to get it again after COVID. So again, we haven't learned. We're, just, we're going to go through the same painful process again. My, again, that's why I think the, the, the big change is going to occur when uh, we realise just how much we've damaged the climate, and then what happens after that, uh, I think it's going to dominate everything. But certainly, as I said, as a dress rehearsal for handling climate change, we didn't pass the audition. Yeah. So credit stagnation, because those companies are so busy paying back what they've borrowed that they can't afford to invest anything else. And I guess other companies can't come along and borrow because banks are going to be very wary of lending money to them. Yeah. So And, and that's sort of, in some ways, that's been Japan's situation since it's... Uh, bubble economy burst well and truly back in the ni- in 1990 uh, and corporations haven't been investing because they've been too busy paying back their level of, uh, of, of borrowed money um, and, and the same thing is likely to strike us that you're going to get very little investment and very little consumer driven demand out of credit and therefore stagnation um, right. which is but, it, but, it, but but accept modern monetary theory the government could you know if you accept that as an approach the government could fix all of these problems. It could, um, but it won't. Not necessarily. You know, I'm, I'm, hoping, I'm hoping in some countries it'll be trial, but the trouble is we're going to be trialling that and then finding we're in a climate catastrophe. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know. Just in uh, case uh, anyone was feeling slightly more optimistic at the end of this podcast, there you go, Steve, oh, again. Yeah. Sorry about that. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I mean, but it, 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 one thing I can't keep coming back to is what asshole uh, thought up the idea of talking about perfect foresight being 2020 vision? Mm. You know, or you know, look, hindsight, 2020 vision, blah, blah, blah. What's it about 2020? I mean, talk about a decade yeah. that sucks. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is the way... <laughs> it, it was just, ironic, ironic one, wasn't one it? Of these, 20, yeah, 2020, one of 2020 the, vision and 2020 was the worst year we've had in our lifetimes. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, we'll leave it there. Good to talk, Steve. Catch you again next week. Okay, mate. Bye. And while yeah. we're talking modern monetary theory, one point made by Stephanie Kelton in her book, The Deficit Myth, which if you haven't read it yet, you need to read. She made the point that US senators wanted to abolish government debt. Those same senators didn't realise that if there was no government debt, there would be no government bonds to trade. That was a bit of a surprise to them. I think we could explore that more, actually. Maybe we do this next week. If you don't issue bonds and treat government debt as uh, an overdraft at the central bank, what does the finance sector do that uses those bonds as a, a means of liquidity and for central banks as a way to control their influence on the economy. How does that work if there are no government bonds? Or do they just control how many bonds they issue? Is it another tool, the issuing of, uh, of government bonds and, and how much is just treated as overdraft? Is that just another tool that's used by the central bank? How's that all going to work in practice? Perhaps we do that uh, next week or in, in coming weeks anyway. But that's it for this week. I'm Phil Dobby, back with Steve Keen again for another edition of the Debunking Economics podcast next week. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.